to Finobris podcast, an open access platform in parallel of the Finobris magazine. Today, a short and recent history of indigenous resistance in Turtle Island with Madonna Thunderhawk and Marcella Gilbert. Hello everyone, today my two guests are Madonna Thunderhawk and uh, Marcella Gilbert, uh, who are two uh, indigenous uh, Lakota uh, activists who, are, uh, who do us the honor of visiting us in Paris uh, in, the la in, the, in those days to talk about the film, um, the film that uh, Christina King and Elizabeth Castle made around their, their struggle. Uh, the film is called Warrior Woman. Um, and uh, we're going to be able to, to talk with them today. Um, hello, those of you. Hello. 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 Thank you so much for giving us uh, some time in a very busy day where you're talking to many media in France. This one will be, will be a little bit more international. But perhaps as a first question, uh, since you, you are talking to many uh, journalists in France, I was wondering whether any of them gave you any indication that they are aware of France's responsibility in settler colonial conditions in Turtle Island, because of course it's a huge responsibility, but no one seems to really be aware of it over here? Uh, we really didn't get that indication, but um, people are, I mean, there's awareness and, you know, but we didn't really go into a conversation like that. I see. Because Yet. Um, yeah, <laughs> hopefully it will, but it's true that quite often and similarly to the African-American struggle, we see, uh, we see French journalists being very... Uh, comprehensive understanding and, and even supporting but when it, when it comes to uh, to anti-colonial and anti-racist fights uh, that where France has a responsibility it seems like those same journalists are nowhere to be found so it's uh, I was interested in asking you this, this question um, but so talking about the talking about the film itself um, the film I think does a, a, a very great work in introducing um, many aspects of uh, of what uh, what indigenous uh, people in uh, in uh, turtle island and in the americas and in the world are 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 fighting against um and um and uh, i think today rather than really talking about the sort of structural conditions of settler colonialism uh, i was more interested in uh, in the little times that uh, we, we will be speaking uh, to maybe insist on the effort of resistance and and the film starts with uh, one of those uh, indigenous schools that uh, you participated in in founding Madonna uh, in the in the 60s I believe uh, could you could you maybe tell us what those schools are are well I I just kind of like to start out with the fact that during that time, in the United States, there was so much social upheaval. Uh, there was many movements going on across the country, and we were just one of many. Um, so things happened as 
uh, our surroundings, uh, whatever area we were involved in, in the country, and of course we are, you know, in the Dakotas, United States, in our our area of South Dakota where all our reservations are. But um, so it was kind of like it developed on its own. We didn't sit down and say, okay, now we're going to do education now. Everybody sit down now. Get to get out your, you know, planning papers, and we're going to sit down here and talk. Never happened. It was out of necessity. Uh, many after Wounded Knee, we were in the, lo the nearest uh, large town, which was Rapid City, South Dakota, in the Black Hills. That's where our offices were for the Wounded Knee Legal Defense Offense Committee because there were so many people indicted by the federal government. As a result of what happened at Wounded Knee, we were all turned into criminals by the federal government. So there was a legal defense committee that was organized, the volunteers across the country that came, attorneys and law students, non-native, most of them, well, practically all of them. Uh, so I, as a person, I was indicted, you know, uh, I was a defendant. So I ended up um, being kind of like a liaison between the... Uh, legal committee and the Indian community, native community. So many of them were families that were indicted and they had children. So we ended up, there was a lot of children wandering around the area of the legal defense committee and stuff, including my children. Um, One of whom is here? Yeah, Marcella. <laughs> Marcella. <laughs> uh, and my you know, nephews and nieces and extended family. So we ended up with, uh, with a, a, it was more, more or less like a youth group, more than a school, you know. Um, so it was just, and it was, it, it just developed on its own. It was, it was really a good, good time. Good. It was, I really, really enjoyed it. I, I was at, um, I was in a public school before I went to to the survival school in Rapid City. I um, I was thirteen, and I remember when when I got there, um, one of the young people that were there handed me the eighteen sixty eight treaty and said, "You need to read this. Mm -hmm. This is what you know. Everybody has to know this." And so right there, I knew that this was not your normal, regular, you know. And it was awesome. It was just amazing. I loved it. It was the best experience in my life, you know, of, of um, education. Because, you know, we learned hands-on. We went to the Wounded Knee Trials. We went to, you know, different actions. And it was amazing. It was an amazing time. It was really good to be a young person then. Nice, and I, I think we'll we'll go back to it in just a minute of how amazing that that time was. But uh, talking about Rapid City is uh, the first, the very first article our common friend Nick Estes wrote for wrote for the Phenomenalist was specifically on Rapid City and um, and the concept of border border towns in particular, and and of course. Uh, uh, 
of course, every city in North America is uh, a sort of illegal settler colonial city, but then some are more specifically a violation of treaties uh, uh, in, the, in those cities that are right outside, uh, uh, right outside the territories that have been called a re reservation. Um, and so could you, could you maybe just, um, for the listeners who might not be well aware of those treaties, because we, we're going we're gonna to speak more about it in, in just a minute, could you maybe uh, explain just a tiny bit more um, the relationship of these kind of border towns to uh, the indigenous population and how, how those towns are, are, by the text, illegal cities? Well, I think just from what I've observed and learned over the years is I understand now what that concept border town meant. Of course, it's we're colonized people over there. All the indigenous are colonized. But some of us have land base yet. And for economic purposes, many of the border towns uh, owe their existence to the native population, which is usually a lot of federal funding through programs, etc. So as I like to say, we're still sacrificing in the national interest of the United States, whether it's keeping white communities going economically or the extraction of our resources, you name it. Uh, as our area along the Missouri River in the United States, we sacrifice our reservation alone, close to a million acres, to a, a dam, which was built in the national interest. Mm. So the all of the dam. taking was not in the 1800s. It's still going on today in the modern day. Mm. and. Um, so yeah, the border towns are very, very racist. I mean, it's just almost now, since there's a lot of intermarriage and there's a lot of, uh, you know, people I knew that were racist, out and out, upfront racist back in the 60s, uh, they have grandchildren now that are enrolled members of our tribe. So that's happening. But still the racism is there when it comes to economics. It's almost like, the white population is, they bite the hand that feeds them. Mm. If it wasn't for us and our existence, they wouldn't have a town. You know, that's from my personal perspective, you know, but. Thank you. Um, and so you already, you already mentioned uh, William Nee in 1973, so we'll, we'll get there in, in a moment. But maybe the first uh, sort of very charismatic um, Episodes of, of indigenous liberation that uh, Madonna you took you took part in and uh, Marcella I'm not even sure you were born in 1969 but uh, <laughs> so I don't know if you were there but uh, the occupation of Alcatraz in in the Bay Area for me is very important in the way that it talks about those treaties as well because you sort of played the system the the settler colonial system against itself could you could you tell us about this um, particular uh, moment of uh, 
of where where something that uh, sort of puts the basis of, of what we of of what has been standing rock later and that maybe much more people are currently aware of and maybe less of Alcatraz. Could you, Madonna? Could you could you describe what uh, what was this occupation of Alcatraz in 1969? <clears throat> well, there's always a story behind the story. <laughs> But just to lay a little groundwork. Not all treaties made by with indigenous people, groups of people, um, were ratified. Mm. Ours, it so happened in the Dakotas, with the, what the government called the Great Sioux Nation, or Ochete Chacoin, in our language. Um, they were ratified by the Congress mm. of the United States, which makes them statutory, and they are the law of the land. Which, since those days, late 1800s, late 1800s, the United States a government has chosen to ignore. So our treaties still stand. They're not broken. They've just been violated. So, okay. That's why when we talk treaty rights, that's what we mean, okay? And it has a lot, to, mostly had to do with land and the boundaries of land. Um... So one of the provisions in one of them, because there's several of them, uh, was that if there's any excess federal territory or land, that it would revert back to the original inhabitants if it could be made, if they could prove that they could make it productive. Okay, that's the, the key in the provision. Um, but ever since World War II, many of our people had gone out to the cities in different areas of the country to work in the war effort of World War II. And for example, my, my relatives were, stayed in the Bay Area. And uh, back in 1964, they went out in a, in a small boat, a handful, two or three of them, and this so happened they were all Lakota from our area of South Dakota. They went, because the federal government It was Alcatraz Island was a federal prison, and they closed it in '63, I believe. So uh, they said, "Okay, here's what we'll do: we'll go out there and state claim to the island, Alcatraz Island, because that land should be go back to the California, the original, you know, indigenous people of California, because that's what the treaty says. Well, it, it was symbolic because that's what it said in our treaty." So that's what they did. They went out and stayed claiming, and they, they left. Well, what, five years later, the newly formed student organizations in San Francisco State University and Berkeley, newly formed Native American ethnic studies departments, okay, had American Indian studies. They got together, and as a group, they went out and stayed claim to the island under the same provision of the treaty and they stayed okay hmm. well I was in South Dakota we were already in South Dakota and uh, it just so happened that we were it had been going on for approximately a year the occupation of Alcatraz when we were we occupied Mount Rushmore to put in the public eye the fact that the Black Hills of South Dakota which is one of America's playlands because of the Mount Rushmore, the faces of long dead presidents carved into a mountain, 
that's where most of the tourists come and they come to see it. So we took that mountain over to make the statement of this is a violation of our treaty. This is our land that's supposed to, you know, but the United States and everybody else just overran it and just took it over. So that was the whole idea behind that. Well, there was an organizer from Alcatraz Island that came, and his name was John Trudell. And he came, and so we were visiting with him, talking and everything. He said, would you in, be interested in coming out to Alcatraz? Because all the press has left, all the movie stars, all the notoriety is all gone. Now we just have a community of you know, people living there that are holding it down, but we need to rebuild you know community we need to we have a lot of children we need to start a school so i said sure so i went out to alcatraz a year after it had already been occupied so that's how i got out there yeah and i think as as far as symbolics are uh, is concerned uh, occupy, occupying a prison in you know from old building is also a very a very powerful gesture and uh, some things that we could use also in abolitionism prison mm -hmm. abolitionism today um well so so we can now talk about the this second episode this third episode because mount rushmore is certainly one we ought to be speaking about as well um but so in in february 1973 Uh, started a 71-day occupation of, um, of the little town of Wundinli on, um, on Lakota land. Um, and I, I, th I think in that case, Marcela, you were, you were probably not very old, but you were, you were present. And could you, could you maybe tell us about, uh, about those 71 days of uh, self-organization? Well, I'll tell you what, where I was. Because I wasn't there. My brother was there. My mother and my brother were in Wounded Knee. I was staying with my mother's mother, my grandmother, Faith, in Rapid City. And so she, she spent time at the Wounded Knee Legal Defense Offense Committee office. And so I hung out with, I got to hang out with her. And I think I was, let's see, when was that, 73? I would have been 12? Yeah, and so um, I got to see what was going on in Rapid City. You know, with the, like there was a place in Rapid City where donations were coming to support Wounded Knee, like food, mostly food. And um, I remember one time we were walking, we were going down there, my grandmother and I, but before we could get down there, the police had pulled in down there and raided it and took all the food and had their guns out and were, you know, and they took all the food and left. So I remember that happening. But I was, so, I was in Rapid City during the time that, not the whole 71 days, but, you know, the time that my grandmother was there, I was there with her. And so I hung out at the, at the legal defense office. office. So, <laughs> but per perhaps for uh, for an international audience who might not be fully aware of what happened in '73, would would you mind maybe uh, setting the setting the context of this uh, of this particular uh, action? Well, again, there's a story behind the story. <laughs> Now, I I was um, with the American Indian Movement at the time. We had a core group that traveled around because we got requests 
to come to every reservation, every community off the reservation in the country wanted us to come because they had no forum, they had no one to tell their troubles to or what was going on. So we got these requests from all over. Well, it just so happened we were in Rapid City, South Dakota, in the Black Hills, and there was a, um, I'm not very good on dates anymore, That's all right. but there was a happening there in the town called Custer, South Dakota, um, and I, that was one of the reasons why we were in Rapid City at the time. Um, but we got a delegation of, uh, I remember, because I was called, they called me upstairs, and I had all my children with me at the time, um, and we were had all these people to, to take care of. I mean, you had to, someone had to take care of the logistics. How are you going to feed everybody? You know, we, got, we have families, you have children, you know, we have babies, you know, we had all of those kinds of things going on. So I was busy, but anyway, I got, got the call. I said, come downstairs. They want you downstairs. There's a meeting going on. So when I got down to the meeting, it was in the basement of this huge building where we were all staying. And uh, it was a large gathering. And there was a delegation came up from the Pine Ridge Reservation. And the spokesperson, uh, she told us, basically what she said was, uh, what are you doing in the urban areas when the real fight is on the land, on the reservation. That was basically what she said. So you need to come down and you need to hear your people. And uh, my brother, Russell Means, he is, that's where his uh, father's family was from. So they basically, at the elders scolded him and they said, you need to come down to your reservation, to your people, and mm -hmm. you need to hear them talk. So then, okay, well, so then they set up meetings. So the next day, myself and a few of the other women, we got a call and I said, all right, we're going to go down and we're going to go south of Rapid City and we're going to start hitting the communities on the reservation. We're going to make a big circle and come back to Rapid City that in the evening. But right now we're just going to meet with people and set up, you know, let them know we're coming and, you know, we can plan in each community. Well, the word went out, Amos coming to the reservation. So, I mean, just like that, no planning. Everybody just said, you got to come to our community. And they gathered in the community halls, the different communities where people all came, food, you know, singing drums, you know, all of that, like that. So there was just a handful of us, and we were mostly women, that came down. And the old, uh, uh, they call it the traditional leaders of, of, you know, not the tribal government, but the traditional leaders all met. So we were there talking, and we were making our way, um, planning again, you know, the next community, next. Well, the route we had to take took us east, through Pine Ridge Village. Now that's where the Bureau of Indian Affairs is located, the Indian Health Service, all the offices to run the tribal, run the reservation. Well, as we were going through Pine Ridge, we were just gonna go right through and then turn north and go through the small village of Wounded Knee, which is down 
kind of in a little valley, surrounded by hills, basically, and then on, continue north to the next community and meet with those people and then go on back to Rapid City, kind of make a big circle. So as we're going through Pine Ridge, more and more cars started joining our small caravan. Pretty soon we had a caravan a couple miles long. Mm -hmm. And all these people were joining the caravan. So we're going bumper to bumper very slow. And we noticed when we were looking around, there was these uh, military vehicles. Kind of off the road, kind of way in the back of the buildings, you know, these large uh, yards where they kept road equipment and stuff. But I noticed back there, and then on top of the Bureau of Indian Affairs building, on the corner, I saw sandbags. And I could see a barrel of a gun, big gun. So I said, you guys, look, 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 look. Do you guys see that? You know, but we're moving slow and people are jumping off and running in and buying goodies and stuff. And, and but we're going, moving. Yeah, yeah, oh, you see that? It looks like a gun. Oh, hey, look back there, you know. What are those, tanks? You know, we were, we didn't know, we thought, well, what's going on? We didn't know we were the target. We said, something must be happening somewhere. Because we were a caravan of families, children. I had my 10-year-old son with me. And here we're going. So we go through Pine Ridge and we're going, going. It started getting dark. This is in, what, February. Mm -hmm. So we're going and we start getting closer to Wounded Knee. And I looked back and you could just see miles of car car lights, headlights, and where they're turning north and coming. Oh, it was just beautiful. Oh, oh my goodness. Little did we know we were driving into a trap. So as we're coming down the, hill, the long hill into Wounded Knee, we could hear gunfire. So then runners kind of coming up the road, they were running and they were saying, hit the ditch, hit the ditch, get out of the car, get in the ditch. So that's what we did. And we made our way into the village. And by that time there was they were saying, take cover, we gotta take cover, you know, we're surrounded. And um, <laughs> we got we got busted the first night. Myself and three other women and one man uh, on one of the back roads outside of Wounded Knee. So that's how we ended up being one of the first ones arrested. And so then our case came up first. We were the first ones that were tried after Wounded Knee. But that's, so everybody on that caravan, of that two or three mile caravan, however long, it was long, everybody has their own individual story because there was no cell phones, there was no instant communications, there was just gunfire. So we all, you know, hit the ditch for cover and stuff. So everybody has their own story of how things happened. But the, what was called the leadership at the time, we were scattered all through the caravan. So there wasn't any big plan. All right, we're going to Wounded Knee and we're going to make a stand. That it, You don't go have a standoff in a hole. I mean, the village is down, you know, the bottom of the valley and it's surrounded by hills. Anyway, so that, to my experience, that's what happened. And it stretched out to 70 of 72 days. Hmm. It's good we even have the soundtrack of the... Well, <laughs> those were firefighters, but it, yeah. sounded, it sounded just like... It sounded very apropos. Uh, well, and so maybe 
doing a big jump in time, which uh, is obviously not revealing the the continuity of, of indigenous resistance in Turtle Island, but but maybe finding another occurrence of total panic from the state as well, because I, I think uh, those all those soldiers and uh, police officers and uh, that we found back in Standing Rock is uh, is what makes uh, the, this bridge also a very a very intuitive one, and and then Standing Rock. I think many of our listeners are, are uh, very very aware of um, of the fight against uh, the North Dakota Access Pipeline and uh, and the fight of water protectors uh, and the union of uh, of many indigenous nations again against this. But um, I uh, I would love to hear your own per- your own perspective on what happened and perhaps with uh, through. Uh, uh, through a, a funny question, perhaps, but Madonna, on the in the film, you're you're you you're seen uh, wearing a kefir, a Palestinian kefir, and I was wondering if there was a, a story behind the story here as well. Well, yeah, <laughs> of course there is. Of course there is. <laughs> Indigenous stories on this planet Earth are all the same. We're all victims of colonization. So the basic land struggle is what what it's about. So we understand, we've had, we, American Indian Movement, the um, progressive, you know, uh, elements of our our people that have been in the forefront and the struggle has always been, we understand we've had a relationship with the struggle in Palestine because it's been about indigenous being, you know, persecuted in their own land. We know that story inside and out. So we understand Palestine. We have a relationship with them since the 70s with Palestine. So end of story, because it's the same story. Colonization, you know, and persecution of indigenous people. Do you, do you have any, uh, any other transnational uh, indigenous Alliances that uh, are worth mentioning. I mean, maybe Ireland. Like, sorry, Ireland. Okay, interesting. In my personal yeah. view, those are the longest. That when I was first understanding and knowing about uh, global, even the term global, back in the sixties and early seventies, is when I started understanding colonialism that there's a bigger issue than just our land, just Turtle Island, you know, that it's global. And this is what was happening all over to everybody. And I was totally amazed when I learned what was going on in Ireland, Northern Ireland. 800 years they've been fighting for their independence, struggling for to be Irish. I mean, that's longest standing colonialism, you know, that I, I remember. Anyway, that's just an example, you know. And then you name it, all over, all over the planet. Great, but perhaps as a, as a concluding question, um, I think, so uh, the, the podcast is listened by uh, many people of many different backgrounds, but it's true that uh, because of my own uh, training and my own research, so as there, we have a, a solid uh, basis of uh, architects, listeners, or people who've been trained in architecture, and settler colonialism being so much about the land, 
uh, of course, archi architects are always the one crystallizing the sort of settler presence uh, in building cities, building building, building pipelines, building many many things of the kind. Whether whereas we're talking about architects with like a, a diploma yeah. in architecture or just engineers yeah. or politicians, every everybody would sort of design uh, this settler colonial infrastructure. So I was wondering if you had something you could say to maybe settler architects and also the, the few uh, indigenous architects who are now, uh, many of them are, uh, are, I know that many of them are graduating soon uh, from school in, uh, in particular in University of New Mexico and uh, Yale. Um, is there, do you have a reflection on this crystallization of the settler colonial infrastructure and how architects can sort of refuse such endeavor? You know, I think in in this modern day now, anything is possible. If you can architecture stuff, you can dismantle too. You know, and use the new new way of thinking, and how to work with Mother Earth, in in working with. I mean, look at uh, oh, the uh, the hobbits. <laughs> the Hobbit houses. I love that. I saw that movie and I thought, Earth homes. Earth homes. I want one of those. Mm. And we're going to have one. We're going to build a decolony on my daughter's land back home. That's what we're going to have. I mean, start thinking in those terms of, come on, break out, you know, do it. Work with Mother Earth. You know, we have funny pictures of Nick in Aotearoa yeah. <laughs> visiting the hobbits. The hobbit yeah, yeah. Oh, you do, that, yeah. you do. Oh. Well, I, I've seen that. Yeah. Yeah, it's really funny. <laughs> I wasn't there myself. Yeah. <laughs> okay, that's nice. Uh, uh, Marcella, perhaps a, a, word, uh, a word to conclude this conversation. Oh, well, um, thank you so much for giving us this opportunity and I'm impressed with, with all that you're doing and getting, you know, sharing, sharing the world with the world. And I think, um, I think I have to support what, what my mother said about, you know, working with the earth. I think that's powerful. And I, I support that totally, totally, totally. Wonderful. Well, I, I don't think I take a big risk in telling you that uh, uh, the, the anti-colonial movement in France is uh, fully in solidarity with your struggle and, uh, and uh, we think about you all the time. And uh, I thank you very much for your time. Thank, thank you. you. This yes. was good. Yeah.